Welcome to Inside the Firm, a podcast dedicated to small business owners and hosted by entrepreneurs, Alex Gore and Lance Psycho. Each week, they take you on their journey of how to start, run, and grow a business by bringing you inside their architecture and real estate development firm. Get a behind-the-scenes tour of how these business leaders manage their clients and foster company culture while creating new and innovative projects. And now your hosts, Alex Gore and Lance Welcome to another edition of Inside the Firm. This is Monday Morning Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gore. I'm here with Dan Stein. Dan is an adjunct professor at NDSU, works for Lake Flato, a frequent guest speaker at Autodesk U, and does a lot of cool stuff in BIM and tech. Dan, welcome to the firm. Hey, thanks for having me. So <clears throat> you're originally from Minnesota. Where right. did you go to school? Uh, well, it, it's a long story, but um, in, in Minnesota. It, <laughs> the U of M? Yeah, oh, partially. Yep. Gotcha. And, and yep. How, how did you get to Lake Plato? Well, that um, uh, somebody called me and asked me to come. Where were you at? I was at uh, LHB. It's a 280-person firm in Minnesota. I worked there for 17 years. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yep. So it was, uh, it was a great place to work. Um, you know, Minnesota is a great place, but we're, my wife and I are really loving San Antonio, Texas. We we're growing lettuce in our backyard in January this past, uh, winter. That's awesome. Yep. So what do you, what do you do at Lake Flato? I'm the director of design technology. So it's actually a role that was created when I came on, I did a whole business plan before I ended up getting hired and came down and did a full one day interview that involved a big presentation to a bunch of people in the firm. And, and so my day to day, uh, work is, is split up in three ways. So 40% of my time relates to building performance. So I work with our director of sustainability and we, we have, a a three now soon to be four person team that does uh, energy modeling and sustainable design, lighting analysis. Um, and uh, another 40% of my time is geared towards design technology. And I work closely with our director of IT. And then the remainder of my time is related to marketing and PR like unto this presentation that I'm doing now. But I've also done presentations to a bunch of AI code working groups all over the U.S. on uh, implementing early energy modeling. That's what my most recent Autodesk University talk was on. Um, the, two weeks ago, I was at the Advancing Computational Building Design Conference in Dallas. And, and then the week before that, I was presenting at Enscape's Global User Group presentation. Uh, so lots, lots of fun stuff going on. You must have had a nice break not going to the conferences, you know, during COVID, but because when I meet people at conferences, some of them go to like one a month. I don't know if you were ever on that schedule. Not quite. I mean, that's the people who are kind of working the booths, right? <laughs> I mean, there's some, some uh, end users that do that as well, but um, I go to quite a few and they all seem to pile up, you know, around this time of year is when a lot of them are, but yeah, yeah, it's Absolutely. great networking. I've definitely 
missed the in-person conferences though. Like last year they had some like Autodesk University this year and last year were virtual. So all the courses were online. And, and so my class was like a 30 minute pre-recorded presentation and then 30 minutes of live Q and A. Um, so, I mean, it's nice for the speaker. It's, it's fairly engaging, but as an attendee, it's just not as exciting. I think, you know, getting to network with people between classes and. Yeah, absolutely. So what is your course at NDSU? And um, what do you think is, what value are you trying to give to the students? Good question. So the course is called, um, um, it's a seminar, so it's optional and it's on building information modeling. And, and it's, it's largely on Revit. It is a graduate level course. Um, so we end up doing energy modeling, daylighting analysis, um, artificial lighting analysis, like point by point illuminance calculations using this professional add-in for Revit called Illum Tools. Um, and then there's also, it's also open to LA and graduate LA students, but they don't often take it. And when they do, it's a little unfortunate because it's, you know, mostly a building software to begin with. And while I have a lot of experience at my previous company in Minnesota, they had in-house LA and civil and structural and MEP. So I've done a lot of Revit training for all disciplines actually. Uh, but yeah, it's not definitely not right up the alley of a LA typical student who's going to school for LA, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah, the class is really great. Um, I think I get a lot of, and why I say that is I get a lot of good feedback from the students saying that when they in, in a much more deep way. You, you pause there for a second. It, it, it cut out. Oh, okay. And it stopped when you said you get a lot of feedback when they. Yeah, I get a lot of feedback from students when they've got when they've got a job and they're they're just getting. Pretty gratifying, you know, to get that kind of feedback from a student who's now in the workforce. I actually wish the course was earlier, like undergraduate level, so that, you know, they would have a little bit more skills when they when they get a their first job as an intern about half of the students have already been using Revit in the workforce but um, I, I tell them some occasionally I'll get a question before the course like I already use Revit in office is am I really going to learn anything and haven't had a single student who's told me they could have gotten by without the class yeah <laughs> we get into a lot of stuff and I don't know if you know this but I've, I've actually written 14 textbooks. So um, six of those books are on Revit. And one of them is the number one Revit book in the academic market in North America. So we use my book in the class. Yeah. Which one is it? What is uh, your what's title? Well, there's the one that we're using the class, interestingly enough, is called Interior Design using Autodesk Revit 2022. And we're using that one because of it. It's a more sophisticated book and how Revit is used. So um, it gets into really complicated things with schedules and doing cost estimates and quantifying furniture and using manufacturer content and uh, 
doing things like with curtain wall in inside the building that and, and a, a pretty complicated stair that goes up to a landing and then splits in two directions and making railings that that almost work yeah that's a good caveat hard, hard to make hard to make railings totally meet code and revit yep that's so for being honest i know that's the thing i ha- tell students like every year is like your railings are not really going to work in Revit. We're yep. going to take it step by step. There's a pretty cool hack though that I just showed them uh, just within the last week. Interestingly enough, the last two, three, well, maybe even the last three or four versions of Revit have some new functionality in railings. One of those things is a support and you can have a, a handrail support, a support bracket show up at a certain spacing or at each post. And the cool thing about those support brackets is you can tab in and select them and unpin them. And on a stair, you can move it like up or down. It's stuck to the railing, but you can reposition it. So Mm. if you go into that family and just sort of think outside the box a little bit, which I know I saw your presentation to NDSU recently, you guys do a lot of that, which is pretty impressive. (laughs) In fact, I'm picturing you standing on the side of a Subaru, um, uh, tiny house right now in your garage that looks like it wouldn't fit out your garage door, but probably not what you're doing. Anyways. <laughs> yeah. There, there is the garage door and uh, the Subaru okay. picture is is somewhere over there. Nice. And there's all the construction stuff. If, if you're watching on YouTube, you can, you can see it. Um, but some people, yeah, some people think I'm in my garage, like, like somehow like my wife kicked me in the out. rafters or something, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But so no, there's, uh, there's stairs. Yep. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Uh, so what was I saying? I lost track. Oh, uh, being creative, <laughs> being inside the family editor. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so you can modify this uh, handrail bracket to actually have a, the post in it. I mean, you could even add a, a light source. So it could be like some sort of, um, you know, LED light on the post as well. But with that in mind, you could actually have a post that sort of like curtain wall is you can position it wherever you want and you can have as many supports as you want. So if you were to go into the railing family and turn off all the vertical elements and then just set up uh, the horizontal elements and then use this, this support bracket trick, you could put, you know, uh, vertical supports anywhere you want them along, along the, the railing. Nice. groups of two and then some you know arbitrary space and another group of two or a group of three or whatever right yeah um in revit when you are analyzing lighting or maybe you've gotten into structural loads and things like that how much are you using what's native in there or how much do you have to get plugins to to do those kind of specialty items yeah so a couple of questions there um i'll start with the lighting because that's the one I'm more experienced with than, than structural. Um, in fact, I'm actually on the committee chair for the National IES BIM Standards Committee. So IES is the Illuminating Engineering Society. Mm-hmm. Um, so Revit, if you're using a tool like Illum Tools, uh, they may also make a product that's been around for 30 years and is the industry standard for professional lighting designers called AGI 32. Um, Their add-in for Revit allows you to basically set up reflectances by Revit material or just to do 
generic by category, like the IES standard is 20, 50, 80. So a floor, any floor, just rule of thumb would be a 20% reflectance. Walls are 50 and ceilings are 80, usually higher these days. But um, you, so anything that is a floor in Revit can get a 20% reflectance without it mattering what materials assigned to it or what floor type it is. Um, and then the, the light fixtures support photometry. So you can attach the actual IES file that the manufacturer provides for the light distribution. Um, and then IllumTools is a little bit more sophisticated in that it, it omits the, the housing or the geometry in the Revit family, like a, a Revit rendering, if you were to do a rendering in Revit or even Enscape, unfortunately, um, the, the photometry includes the light distribution, which includes all the reflectances that have already happened off of the housing of the light fixture. So um, in, in a Revit rendering, um, the light bounces again off of that, you know, on a direct, indirect light or whatever. So this IllumTool software properly defines, lets you define all the reflectances of the surfaces. And then um, it uses the photometry that's in the Revit light fixture family properly. If it's a nested family, like multiple heads on a parking lot pole, it, it'll, uh, the pole, like, well, the nested uh, geometry occludes light. Gotcha. Um, structural, do you not dive into structural tools or? Uh, at my previous company, we used, um, we had structural, like I mentioned, for buildings and for bridges. And for buildings, we used a tool called Risa 3D. It's a standalone company that you uh, can load. Um, you can model a structural frame and do full calcs for wherever it is um, in the world, in the U.S. for sure. And they make a Revit add-in. So all of your structural members in Revit get pushed into Risa, and you can do the calculations. And then it's pretty cool because it can round trip. It can push the the uh, you know, once you do the calculations, it'll tell you if a beam needs to be deeper or if you're missing some sort of cross bracing. Um, and, and then you can push those updates back into Revit and it'll create new, uh, it'll swap out families for deeper beams or whatever. Usually they don't get uh, thinner, right? <laughs> <laughs> so the beam gets deeper and, and new you know, potential cross bracing shows up that, that wasn't in Revit previously. You can actually start in Risa and push a structural model into Revit as well. And there's other tools too, like um, Autodesk has a competing product. I think it's called Robot for structural analysis. And, and then uh, I can't remember. Bentley has one. Maybe that maybe they own Risa. I can't remember, but there's a couple of tools out there that are like, you know, structural engineer grade tools. Gotcha. Um, I heard you mentioned Enscape. What's your opinion of it? How much do you use it in the firm? Yeah. Um, yeah. So full disclosure, Enscape literally pays me money. <laughs> for the last <laughs> three years, I, I write blog posts for them on their website. Yep. And in 2019, I went to a bunch of conferences with them all over the world, including Autodesk University London and few months later, a conference called Built, B-I-L-T, yep. in, in Scotland, and then AU in Vegas and Midwest U in Minneapolis. Um, 
but yeah, I, I'm a big fan. I've been using it since the year it came out in 2015. One of the uh, co-founders actually spent uh, a semester abroad. So Enscape's from Germany and uh, Mort spent uh, a high school semester in Duluth, Minnesota. I mean, we were obviously there at the same time, didn't know it, but it was pretty amazing small world. Yeah. So, 80% of uh, Lake Flato uses Enscape, our non, you know, corporate folks, all of our design people, 80% of them use it regularly. And it's our only visualization tool other than Photoshop. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I would echo everything. I mean, our firm has moved into it. Um, it there's, there's, Kind of no. I mean, there's other programs out there. It just seems like for whatever reason, Enscape has, has taken over and and done smart updates, uh, included yep. material packs. So it's it's they're staying ahead of the game instead of resting on their laurels, which yeah could only lead to you know people switching. So that's not good. Yeah, I, I've it's funny. I've said this a lot, uh, particularly in the last two weeks. But it's interesting that Enscape is arguably not the best rendering engine. I mean, there's tools out there that can, at the end of the day, the final product could be, you know, multiple times better, but yeah. the workflow is by far the best out there. And, and the fact that it's so fast and staff can do it themselves, it's truly like a, you know, the, I find this word democratize is used way too much, but <laughs> I mean, everybody can do their own stuff now. And that includes, uh, full VR. We have people grabbing um, our VR laptop and an Oculus Quest 2 and, and doing VR themselves with clients and um, doing uh, panoramas and uploading them into Yulio and, and doing videos and just client walkthroughs left and right. We have some really cool projects that we're working on all over the country, uh, including a new mass timber data science center at UPenn. And it has just some really cool frit patterns in the glass and, and lots of really awesome textures. We actually hired a, a UTSA architecture student over the last summer. Um, and she, she spent the entire summer making high quality, like totally redoing our texture library. So we have all these really high quality textures of, of woods and stones and tiles and paint colors and things that can be duplicated and modified, you know, cause not all our stuff is those same materials. Right. Yep. Yep. I would agree, agree because, um, with the workflow, definitely, I don't know if you Lumion or uh, unity 3d, you know, those might be some of them that might technically be better, but to learn another sophisticated software, mm -hmm. um, and to be good at it, uh, rather than to learn one that's like Enscape, that's, really good and you can just pick it up basically i'm not going to say there's no learning curve but yeah um relatively compared to trying to do stairs and revit i mean come on <laughs> yeah right um on the hardware side uh did you investigate so here's here dell slash pcs versus apple mm -hmm. right Apple is not, Revit is not native on Apple. Right. And, but what's crazy is that Apple is a creativity centered uh, it, computer uh, 
manufacturer is, is how I would describe them. Architects, I mean, a lot of people say that we're creative and, and, I, and I agree with that. A lot of times I push back and say, we do a lot more of other stuff and, and the amount that we deal with the city is it would boggle your mind if you really had to know how much we have to deal with the city, but yep. we are creative. And, and I don't know if you watch the event with the new uh, Mac book that they, that they got, but I think it just came out yesterday. Yeah. Um, yeah. Man, do they seem to be making leaps with, with their chips. And I, and uh, I just wonder if you have any thoughts on, on just kind of, where Revit is with that. And, and if, if there's discussions with that, especially if you're teaching and you know, you're at Lake Flato, what's the kind of buzz from your side? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, we're pretty, pretty solidly, you know, in the PC world. Um, but uh, I don't know. I, I know my son's in art school. He's studying at MCAD in Minneapolis and he has a, a MacBook pro and, the 13 inch doesn't even have a discrete graphics card. So it's, it's like with anything, you got to buy the right parts and pieces and, and NVIDIA is doing some pretty crazy things. Um, I was on a webinar. This was probably four weeks ago now um, with the lead rendering engine developer at Enscape and uh, a representative from NVIDIA. And then I was on as, you know, relaying the customer experience of one of the big new features that Enscape just came out with in their most recent release, which is um, support for the NVIDIA RTX Tensor cores. So originally graphics cards just had the CUDA cores and that's the brute force of like GPUs is these CUDA cores. Um, the, the RTX cards have CUDA cores, um, the RT cores and the tensor cores. About a year ago, NVIDIA or Enscape started supporting the RT cores, which is, is if, you, if you're familiar at all with a, like a CPU, one of the things that makes them so fast in, for programmers is they have like built-in math formulas. Like you could write out how to do some math equation in any coding tool. But if you called on that math formula in this, you know, it's hardwired into the, the math coprocessor of the CPU, it's going to give you the answer in a fraction of the time. And so the RT cores have RT means real time. So there's real time rendering code built into the chipset on how reflectances work and, you know, thing and how uh, the, um, uh, the global illumination is dealt with. So about a year ago, Enscape started supporting the RT uh, functionality in the chipset. However, they had ingeniously come up with their own version of this, like, at, at, you know, in software wise, because, you know, since 2015, Enscape's been doing this thing that seems like magic, right? <laughs> in the old days of rendering, it would take overnight or, I mean, I've, I've had uh, back in the day renderings that took two, three days to process. Mm -hmm. And now Enscape's doing them in real time. You know, the, the boxes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So now fast forward to this recent 3.1 release of Enscape and they're supporting the, the tensor cores, which is actually enabling AI into the process. So it's, it's AI based upscaling and it's called deep learning super sampling. So what this allows Enscape to do 
instead of rendering at 1080 or 2K or 4K or even 8K, right? If you have an 8K screen, previously, Enscape would have to render to that native resolution if you maximized Enscape on your screen. And so now they can render a fraction of the pixels and AI automatically upscales. And then as a side effect of that, they have this, um, this other technology built into the chipset for anti-aliasing. So in some cases, the in, in particularly like in trees and, and things like that, the quality is better than it was before. And it took Enscape and the graphics card a fraction of the resources, which then means there's more room for bigger, more complex projects. And one place that really shines is when you're moving around on screen or in VR, like, you know, if, if there's somebody like me sort of close to the camera and you go flying by me, you would see like this ghosting of me on, on the screen in Enscape right now, if you have 3.0 or, or older and the new AI enabled version just doesn't do that. So Enscape's using three different chipsets on the RTX cards, which is pretty phenomenal. That's, that's crazy. Um, how much, you might not know this and that's fine because I have no idea for, but it seems like with each, do they have to program a version that works on multiple different cards and it senses which card that's using and then the build. Does Enscape have to do that? Yeah. No, no. They, um, so the RTX, um, if you have any card, whether it's a consumer or professional grade card, if it has RTX on it, it's good to go. It has the same functionality. It's just that the, the bigger, more expensive cars have more cores and more RAM. So at Lake Flato, we have a pretty high-end card in every single person's computer. It's a RTX Quadro 5000. Mm -hmm. This thing has 16 gigabytes of GPU memory on it. So that's what really uh, makes it stand apart from the consumer cards, which arguably um, can be sometimes faster and uh, significantly cheaper. <laughs> but when Enscape runs out of GPU memory, it literally just disappears off the screen. They don't have the um, error checking built in there because that would take up too much performance. So we're working on giant projects all over the country and, and um, uh, we have to have these big beefy graphics cards. Mm -hmm. Are you working on laptops there or does everyone have a desktop? Good question. Um, so uh, interestingly enough, Dell just wrote a blog post about our, our setup um, just at the end of 2020. And in the office, everybody has a desktop with this big graphics card in it. And uh, so when the pandemic hit, everybody went home and most people ended up using like a home computer or something. But then we ended up um, uh, shortly after I started we bought everybody in the company a full computer package for home, which included this Dell um, tablet and a stylus. So now these architects have the best of both worlds, right? They can draw on the screen in Bluebeam and in Zoom and um, other drawing programs like uh, Concepts is one that we use that works well in the iPad and, and the PC-based tablet. Um, and then they remote in using what's uh, something called VMware. And that is a pretty, um, you know, like an enterprise 
remote desktop solution that has some special uh, technology for enabling the graphics card remotely. So we can use Enscape from wherever we are looking at it through the tablet, uh, which is pretty cool. So basically you, they can run their uh, high powered machine from that tablet. From, from anywhere, yep. So they can even, um, do people use Revit on that? Oh yeah, yeah, I mean all the, so the computer, it's just like, it's essentially, um, you know, the only thing going over the internet is your keyboard and mouse clicks to the office and then coming back, it's like like a, a video on YouTube essentially, right? It's just a constant stream of what the computer screen would be seeing if you were in the office. And it's really the best scenario because having a high powered laptop away from the data is a nightmare. Like VPNs are how you would typically access files remotely uh, on a server, but our files are giant, right? Like one gigabyte Photoshop and Rhino and InDesign files. So people in those scenarios end up downloading them to the laptop and then never putting them back. Oh man. Yep. I can see what goes wrong there. Yep. So anyways, it's cool. And another super cool thing that I've been experimenting with in the world of VR and Enscape and NVIDIA. Uh, NVIDIA has this thing called Cloud XR that they recently developed. And what this allows you to do is, is take, um, for the testing I've done, you know, Enscape can export a, a standalone EXE file. And uh, it basically encompasses your model, whether it's SketchUp, Rhino, or Revit, and the Enscape software. And you can fire that up without uh, any license for Revit or Enscape. Um, and then even on that, you can also enable VR. If, if a VR you know, capable headset is connected to the computer. So what Cloud XR does is it allows that EXE to be put on um, an Amazon AWS server or data center. Like you fire up a virtual computer and it's, it's like, um, uh, let's see, $2 an hour or something like that when you start it. So you have to remember to stop it. <laughs> Otherwise it <laughs> keeps, keeps charging like a, like a hose. Yeah. Um, but you fire up this virtual computer in Amazon AWS server. The closest one to me is Ohio. That's the lowest latency. And then you, on that computer, you fire up Enscape, which could also be Revit and also be full Enscape. But in this case, I'm just testing it with the EXE. At my house here in Texas, you know, I'm like a thousand miles away, right? I put on an Oculus Quest 2 headset wirelessly and I can connect it either to my 5G network on my phone or my Wi-Fi 6 wireless router in my house. And it's, it's crazy. You can enable VR on this computer in Ohio and it streams it to the headset and it's full VR where you can walk around just like you were tethered to a computer. Um, so the the thing that's happening, which is crazy, is you're turning your head and it's sending a signal from Texas to Ohio to say that you turned your head. And the response of the graphic changing is fast enough where it still works. It's still a reasonable VR experience. That's crazy. I, I would have thought the latency wouldn't work. I almost would have thought that the latency wouldn't work with, you know, I'm at my home and I'm controlling my powerful computer at work 
Yeah. Um, but I don't even know how many people work at Lake Flato. A hundred? I have 140. no idea. 140. So yeah. it seems to work for them, right? So yeah. Well, this is something I'm testing. What we actually use right now uh, with the Oculus Quest 2 is um, if you have a, a, a wireless access point, um, about two or three months ago, Oculus came out with an update that allows you to, to basically ditch the cable from the computer to the headset. Um, and so you connect the headset to basically a wireless router, right? You, we, we all have one at home. And I happen to have one in my closet because I just had upgraded when we moved to Texas. So I took this one out of my closet plug that into the laptop and nothing has to be connected to the internet. The, just picture this, the laptop's connected to the wireless router and then the Quest 2 headset connects to that um, ISSD or whatever it's called, the wireless name that shows up, right? That, that you connect to. So the headset sees it as a wireless connection. When it connects, it finds that there's no internet, but it still allows you to basically have a really high quality wireless full VR experience in Enscape where you can make a huge play area. You don't have to worry about spinning in circles and getting wound up in the cable or more importantly, your client <laughs> spinning yeah. in circles and getting wound up in the, in the cable and tripping or embarrassing it, you know, your, uh, you know, uh, all everybody involved. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, it, is that where you think the future is and you're just there a little bit ahead or is there something even further out that you think is coming down the pipeline? So wireless is definitely a big thing. Streaming it will, will be big. Um, we at, at LHB in Minnesota, we had been doing wireless for quite a long time. There was a, an adapter for the HTC Vive that, um, uh, allowed you still had to have the sensors and that's the cool thing about the quest 2 is there's no sensors it's inside out tracking um, but another thing that we were doing there at, back in 2017 and um, we've done it now at lake flato for our own office that we're remodeling is using the microsoft hololens for augmented reality and that's um I, I see that becoming bigger in the future. Right now, it's crazy because of the cost. If you want to get the Trimble XR10, which is the Trimble uh, version of the HoloLens 2 packaged into a hard hat, which is what you need to use if you're going to ever use it on a construction site, mm -hmm. it's a $5,000 device. <laughs> but it's amazing because it projects a hologram. I don't, have you ever tried a HoloLens? Uh, once, uh, magic leap. Yeah, that's similar, but not quite the same. So Microsoft has, it's just a competitor, like, you know, Chevy versus Dodge. Right. Yeah. And the HoloLens two has this wider field of view and it's brighter. And, um, at LHB, we, we had used it, uh, for the Minnesota power corporate headquarters. They'd gutted the whole first floor and we were walking around the first floor with the client had a headset on and was seeing all the new walls and, and windows and uh, finishes actually showing up. And if, if there was a hologram of a wall between you and me, like we were standing yep. five feet apart, I could hardly see you. That's how opaque the holographic wall is in front of me. 
but you still have your full peripheral vision because you don't want to fall in a hole on a construction site. Right. Right. Um, and then um, another example of that at LHB was we used it for a um, vertical endeavors. It's a rock climbing wall company. I don't know if they had those in or have those in Fargo or not, but Minneapolis and, and Duluth have them and they're designing a new facility in a warehouse in St. Paul. And this was back in 2017. I have a post about it on my blog, BIM chapters. And um, the client walked around this huge warehouse until the batteries died on the thing, climbing ladders, looking at it from every angle. And then fast forward to 2019 at the Minnesota AIA convention, um, we had a class on it and everybody jumped on a school bus and went to the project site that was like 10 minutes away. And uh, we did a presentation on the technology and the client was there talking about how awesome of an experience it was, which is, you know, the best part about the whole presentation, I think. <laughs> and then we got, people got to try it. They put on the headset and the hologram popped up. You use a QR code to align it. Mm -hmm. um, and you could see the, the, the rock climbing wall aligning up with the hologram, like the real wall that was built lining really closely with the hologram and uh, the software that we use actually has an add-in to Revit so because it's aware of Revit when you push it into the HoloLens it has built-in voice commands without having to do anything special uh, related to Revit categories so you can say things like hide furniture and all wow. the furniture disappears isolate structure and you see just the columns and beams and and like I said, there's a QR code that you can place in Revit on like an existing column or an existing elevator door. And then you go to the project site and have one printed out and tape it to the same spot. And you just look at that QR code and the whole hologram lines up. Um, the biggest drawback to that is it doesn't work outside very well. So if you wanted to walk, you know, you have that big development you're working on, right? You think, oh, that'd be awesome to go stand outside and see that new community center or, or whatever that, I think there was a church, right? Or something big family development you're working on. Ah, uh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, theoretically, you would be able to put this headset on and walk around and see the buildings like in the actual site, but uh, it, unfortunately because of contrast it doesn't work outside very well yeah that is too bad because it would be amazing um, yep. for sure uh autodesk um what what's one of your favorite talks that you've given there at autodesk university yeah yeah probably the the most recent one i actually did a similar talk uh to this one as well um two or three years ago in, in, um, in uh, Ljubljana, Slovenia in Europe. And at that conference, it was ranked the number two talk for the whole conference by the, you know, they do the survey at the end of the class. Mm -hmm. This one, two weeks ago now was had about 500 people signed up and, and it's not just something I'm passionate about um, implementing early energy modeling in an architecture firm. So Lake Flato, I don't know if you know this, but are you familiar with the AIA Coat Award? Uh, I have seen it. I'm not too familiar, but I've yeah, seen it. Yeah, it's like the yeah. top sustainability award from yeah. the National. 
And so Lake Flato has won more of those than any other firm in the U.S. We've been a member of the AIA 2030 commitment since it came out 10 years ago. And um, the end of 2019, right before I joined, Architect Magazine ranked us the number one firm in the U.S., so lots of cool stuff already going on, but um, the energy modeling practice was kind of um, sort of like rendering of previous days uh, gone by. You know, they're sort of dedicated to specialists or specialist groups. And right. so what we did at Lake Flato and, and similar to what we did at uh, LHB is using this Revit plus Insight workflow so it, it basically, Revit has the ability to create an energy analysis model that, that's pretty sophisticated. And then that can be pushed to the cloud and an insight uh, uses Doe 2.2. And in the future, I'm on a beta for this. It's going to use Energy Plus. And uh, the really cool thing about it, and this is sort of part of the presentation, is what insight does is it it automatically calculates a range of values for each input. So from Revit, all you need is the model and the location on earth. And when you push it out to the cloud, it calculates a range of, for your roof assembly, including our, our value in thermal mass, R0 up to R60. And it gives you a little graph. And if the graph's steep, there's a lot of opportunity for, uh, for saving energy on a, on a, you know, really tall building with a small roof, the graph's going to be kind of flat for that roof on that building. Mm -hmm. But on a strip mall or something with a huge roof and maybe not as, as much exterior walls, the graph is going to be super tall, meaning that uh, R0, you're going to lose a lot of energy, right? And R60, you're going to save a ton of energy versus a building with not very much roof area. And it's sort of a flat graph. You're still going to save you know, by not using R0, right? Yeah. And of course there's code minimums, which it also, the Insight gives you the ASHRAE 90.1 baseline and then the architecture 2030 goal. And so it actually gives you some metrics to just work against right off the bat as well. Gotcha. And then that updates as you do iterations and, and you work. Yeah. So it doesn't update the model at all because the strategy might mean that, you know, you have to, um, add a bigger roof overhang or something like that to block solar heat gain or change the window to wall ratio. Uh, although Insight actually will uh, show you where the, the BIM setting is, for example, on the, the east window to wall ratio, but then it'll simulate down to zero and up to 99% window to wall ratio. So if the client says, I want more windows, you can, without even actually modeling the windows, you can see what kind of performance hit that would be analytically. Yeah. And then it, I mean, is this as intuitive to use as Enscape or am I going to have to really spend some time learning? Well, it's, it, it has a, a learning curve. I mean, energy modeling is arguably a little more sophisticated than rendering, right? Yeah. So there, there are some things that you run into that, that can be problematic, but, for example, just doing massing, Revit has the ability to make massing, just like SketchUp. You can create a, a rectangle mass. and it's got the little 
push-pull widgets, which are like the push-pull command in SketchUp. You can create massing, and then when you create the energy model of that in Revit, um, part of this sophisticated workflow that Revit has just in itself is it adds perimeter and core thermal zoning, uh, which is required by ASHRAE 90.1 Appendix G. If you're going to do early energy modeling, you have to simulate the zones you know, you can't just say an entire floor plate's one zone because, you know, in the morning and in, in uh, Fargo when it's 20 blowout, <laughs> the sun's hitting one side of the building, there's a chance it could require heating on that side uh, or cooling, I should say, and the other side still needs to do heating, right? So mm -hmm. it's a pretty sophisticated workflow and it, it has a learning curve for sure, but that's um, that's why I like presenting on it because the, the entire workflow I just described is completely free if you have Revit. In fact, all the DOE 2.2 calculations with all those values in, for each input are calculated in Amazon's AWS servers, just like I was talking about the NVIDIA Cloud XR stuff. And uh, well, I don't expect anybody to feel sorry or bad for Autodesk. You know, they're not charging for that calculation and Autodesk has to pay for it. Um, you know, they're, they're certainly getting their money from us other ways, but, um, you know, other tools that do similar things are obviously aren't free. They're, they're coming from competing products yeah. like Cove Tool and Sphira and um, we, we do use another tool quite often that's a Rhino-based tool called Climate Studio. And while that does some energy modeling, we mainly use it for annual daylighting analysis. And, oh, I forgot to mention, you were asking about PC versus Mac earlier. Um, at the uh, Enscape user group conference that was two, three weeks ago now, they announced they're, they're going to be coming out with uh, support for Mac. So like architecture students, I, I remember touring RISD in, in uh, Rhode Island with, with my son when he was looking for an art school to go to. Um, he's not interested in architecture, but they're, they use Macs and they only use Rhino. So Mac runs on a, or Rhino runs on a Mac. And so with Enscape supporting Mac, it'll just be a, a really great option, right? For those, those sorts of students and professionals. Yeah. Well, if you run into anyone at uh, Autodesk, tell them to get Revit over on a Mac. Um, yeah. Because here's why going into the nitty gritty of the M1 chip, like unless, I mean, NVIDIA might be doing some stuff and things like that, but the performance versus the Intel ch chips, um, they're just more efficient. They, I, I love how you can just customize, especially laptops um, to the specs you need pretty easily. They don't have as many different options, but mm -hmm. um, it's just a, I mean, I'm sorry, Dell, it's just kind of a nightmare sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the other challenge is, you know, the thing that would concern me if Autodesk started working on a Mac version, not that I say they shouldn't, I, I'm not necessarily against it, but they, I think they need to support the, the uh, multi- core multi-threaded chips that they're already working on a little better. Yep. I would agree with that too. Yep. Um, so yeah, maybe there's two things that they need to do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, I feel like there's a bunch of too. It's like every time there's an update, 
they changed some stuff and it's super helpful. And then yeah. they're like, well, why haven't you changed this issue that has been terrible for so long? And I'm sure there's a reason for it. Yeah, um, I'm involved in a couple of betas with them. One of them I already mentioned is the their next gen energy modeling stuff. And another one is a little bit more mundane Revit stuff. And to, to be fair, you know, they have such a massive user base, right? They're right. super careful when they change stuff to make sure, I mean, Obviously, things still don't work, and there's still bugs in every new version. But um, they they seem to spend an extraordinary amount of time on something that you know, not knowing how to code or anything myself. Right? I'm like, seems like this shouldn't have taken that long. But you know, they're they're doing all these regression tests and trying to make sure they don't blow up everybody's projects. Yeah. Well, and too, it's it's like every individual can have a pet thing that they want from it, but then mm -hmm. how many buttons, how many workflows are you going to add? And then all of a sudden it just becomes a super complicated thing that someone can take over by doing a swifter, more nimbler thing. So yeah, yeah I, I, I don't envy them or their position, um, but I would still like a Mac version <laughs> yeah. regardless yeah, of everything. There's I've a lot just of people said. who do, and some people still use it on a Mac, right? Parallels or bootcamp. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't think it can work on an M1 chip. Because yeah, it used know. to be able to do on a Intel chip, you know, because that's what the the, the higher end ones had was was Intel, you know. Yeah, I gotcha. I gotcha. That, I that makes sense that it probably wouldn't work. Yeah. Um, before we wrap it up, any other rabbit holes or topics that you want us to touch on um, before I we kind of give uh, places to find your stuff and things like that? Um. And you'll think of it right after we hang yeah. out too. Yeah, I know. That, that's exactly how it'll happen. No, I, I think we covered a lot of interesting topics. Um, yeah, I, I can't think of anything extra to add. What, what, what are the core programs? And I know you already went over it, but just mm -hmm. maybe one will pop up that Lake Flato uses. Sure. So... Revit, of course, and we do a lot with BIM 360. So most of our users have access to the cloud. We're an architecture-only firm. So all of our projects, we're partnering with MEP, Structural, Civil, which I think is really great because we work on a pretty wide range of projects. So we get you know, the best firm for, for the project and the location of the project. So Revit, uh, add-ins to Revit, like like I mentioned, Loom Tools, PY Revit, CTC, Productivity Tools. Um, we have some custom tools that we had made for us. Um, we use Rhino and Grasshopper and Climate Studio in Rhino, like I already mentioned. Uh, of course, we use SketchUp. Um, what else? Some, we use Miro quite a bit, M-I-R-O. It's a cloud-based collaboration tool. Um, so this allows multiple people to be in this big blank canvas and put sticky notes and drop images in. And they got these cool little connectors to point the arrow from this thing to, to the next thing. And they actually made a really interesting video of, about Lake Flato and our firm culture. And then um, the last, you know, quarter of it was, was the fact that we use Miro um, and we actually used Miro uh, myself and, and one other person from our firm were um, two of six people 
that recently just finished writing this uh, AIA Climate Action Guide for Practice that the AIA hired us to write. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the AIA Framework for Design Excellence that's been out a little bit. It be called the Quote Top 10, um, which is basically a, uh, several strategies, categories and strategies for buildings. And this is a document that parallels that and it's meant to, to help firms develop a more sustainable practice rather than the project. So talking about leadership and um, in, you know, embracing change and, and, and uh, facilities, things uh, like some VDI testing where we, we have, we did some testing with some new NVIDIA A40 graphics cards and you can run Revit and Enscape and as, throw as much as you want against eight people on this one piece of hardware. And no matter how much you throw at it, the maximum uh, power is, is 98 Watts um, for per person. You know, I have a little meter right now from my laptop at my desk and it's 140 Watts and I'm using a Dell laptop and, you know, so uh, anyways, uh, so Miro is pretty cool. We act, the reason I mentioned that report that we created is that we, the AIA had a bunch of subject matter experts, like 22 people, and we sent them all a link to Miro right at the very moment the meeting started. And they all jumped in there and were able to instantly like contribute and have a voice. And, um, you know, they, they didn't have to feel like they had to speak out loud if they didn't want to. They could just slap up post-it note next to an image and say what they liked or didn't like about it. And it was a great way to capture information in their own words. Um, there's probably lots of other software, um, but those, those are some of the big ones, right? We use some other performance tools like Woofy 2D and Woofy Passive House and uh, uh, Flixo. And what is your um, file management? Do you have your own internal server yep. yep and uh what is uh because we just use dropbox that's mm -hmm. all and it, it you install it and your files are there and you organize them how you're going to organize them is there a, a basically a software that then links to and then you or or, or do your folder structures just kind of linked into your own uh server there and it's pretty straightforward to navigate well, that, that's the cool thing about everybody having a tablet. They're remoting into the desktop that's sitting right next to the server. So when you open a Revit file or some big file, it, it's the server's, you know, 100 feet away, probably at most, depending on where you are in the building. Um, so everything's just a traditional file server, and it's backed up um, uh, off-site each night. And, um, and because of our, you know, Microsoft, account you know size and options and what we pay obviously at the end of the day uh, everybody has a pretty good one drive which is the same thing as dropbox right one one drive account and we use teams for um, some sharing of of uh, like grouping studios and things but um, most mostly we use zoom though everybody has a zoom account because you can draw on the screen and zoom and that's what architects like to do. <laughs> um, but yeah, that we use new forma right now as well for, you know, creating a transmittal package that we can track that people actually downloaded it and when they downloaded it, 
how many times they downloaded it, things like that. Has awesome. a liability component attached to it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, Dan, thank you for your time. Uh, this is really interesting to me. So thanks for everything that you shared. Uh, let anyone know uh, where to go to find more about you. Um, I'm sure they can Google Lake Flato, but if I'm sure their uh, web address is probably lakeflato.com. Yep. If I'm wrong, let me know. Um, <laughs> Good guess. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, where to reach out or, or where do you want to point people to? The end is yours. Sure. Yeah, I have a blog called BIM Chapters. I'm pretty active on for the last probably three years now. It gets twenty to thirty thousand views a month, which is pretty cool. Um, uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, those are going to be the main place to to find out more about me and see some of the content that I've created. And um, uh, yeah, I think that's probably about it. Awesome. Well, thank you, Dan. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me on.